0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here. I'm so glad uh, that you have joined us this morning as we continue in our series, On the Run. We're looking at the life of David. And what we saw last weekend was that David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. David was always running toward God. He was always running after God's heart. And so we want to know what it means to be men and women who are running after God's heart as well. And so that's what we're trying to to learn in this series. Uh, So if you brought your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, we would like to give you one. Uh, You're welcome to keep one of the the Bibles that's under the seats around you. Better yet, if you go to the Info Hub after the service, we'll give you a a brand new one. The ones in the room get used and, and a little tattered sometimes, so... Tell the folks out at the Info Hub that uh, you'd like a Bible, we'll give you one. But First Samuel chapter 17, it's somewhere around page 200 in the house Bible. But last weekend, Kevin told us the story of a man named Saul. And I want to recap that story just to set up where we're going to go today. See, Saul was the first human king of the nation of Israel. And God had chosen Israel to be a nation that would be set apart. They would be a nation that would be different. They were to act differently. They were to speak differently. They were to worship differently than the nations around them. And part of their differentness was to be in the way that they would be governed. See, while all the other nations had a man, a human king, who either had been appointed or maybe sometimes had appointed himself, God said, no, Israel, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to be the one that you look to for leadership. I'm going to be the king of Israel. And that uh, worked for for a while. You read about that in the book of Judges. But eventually the Israelites decided they knew better than God and they didn't want God to be their king. And so they went to the priest Samuel and they said, Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations have. We We want a man to be our king. And this made Samuel angry, but the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, it's okay, they're not rejecting you. They've rejected me. You give them what they want. And so we meet this man named Saul, and Saul is made the first human king of Israel. And we learn fairly quickly that Saul was not a man after God's own heart because he receives a direct command from the Lord. He disobeys that command, and we're told that that because Saul rejected God, That God rejected Saul as king. In fact, we read in the text last weekend that God regretted that he had ever made Saul king of Israel. Now, understand, Saul is still in the position of king, he has not been dethroned. It's just that he is no longer God's chosen. And Kevin told us last week that that God spoke to Samuel again and he told him to go to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse, that one of Jesse's sons would be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel goes and one of Jesse's sons, David, is brought before Samuel and the Lord says, he's the one, anoint him, he's going to be the next king of Israel. And God sees fit to bring David into the palace. He he comes under Saul's service and he becomes an armor bearer for Saul. And he's a musician in Saul's court. And all of this sets the stage for the story that we're going to look at today. It's one of the best known stories in all of scripture. It's the story of David and Goliath. But I want to ask you to do something before we start this morning. And admittedly, it's going to take some real effort on your part and mine. Because for many of you, when I mention David and Goliath, your mind goes to this. Uh, it's, a, it's a cartoon, right? It's a children's book. It's just a, a colorful picture. If you're a little bit older like I am, maybe your mind goes to something like this. This is what's known as flannelgraph. And flannelgraph is an ancient art form that was used to depict <laughs> biblical truths. If you're not familiar with it, Google it. Uh, you can find out all about it. Or maybe if you're younger, it's something more like this, Dave and the Giant Pickle. And I just I want you to know I have nothing against VeggieTales, but how did we get here? I mean, it, well, here's how we got here. What seems to have happened is that in order to make this story appropriate for children, we've removed the grit. Okay, we've we've rounded off the edges, we we've softened it, we've painted with bright, colorful, uh, you know, colors, pretty colors, and we've turned the main characters into vegetables with boxing gloves. But this morning, what I'm asking you to do is to put these images aside. To put these aside and to see this story with fresh eyes and to hear it with fresh ears because to really understand the story of David and Goliath, we cannot smooth over the edges. We've got to leave the grit where it is. We can't make it G-rated because it wasn't. This is a story about ancient warfare. And what we know about ancient warfare is that it was brutal and it was horrific. And while modern warfare could still be described in that way, it's often far less personal because in modern warfare, soldiers have the advantage of striking from a distance. They can strike from a plane or from a ship or from one mountain to another. It's far less personal, but in ancient times, they fought face to face at arm's length. You saw the battle not through a scope or on a radar screen, but over the edge of your own shield. You looked your opponent in the eye. You smelled their stink. You saw the sweat coming down their face. And when the command was given, you thrust your weapon only inches in front of you, hoping to impale your enemy before they impaled you. And only after the battle would you really know what your wounds were, because everyone would have been covered in blood. The question is, was it, was it your blood or was it someone else's blood? And so after the battle, as you took account, if it was your blood and you were able to stop the bleeding, there still was a very great chance that you would not survive as infection set in. In fact, in ancient times, it wasn't uncommon for men to fight almost completely naked, Because while they didn't understand things like bacteria and germs, what they knew was if they got stuck with a weapon and a piece of clothing went in with the puncture wound and stayed there, that that piece of clothing could cause them to lose an arm or a leg or even their life. And if in the midst of battle your brothers lost courage and turned to run, leaving you there on the battlefield, you would most certainly die. It was brutal. It was bloody, and it was horrific. And that's a lot to put in a veggie tale. But this is the scene that's about to unfold in First Samuel chapter 17. Here's what we read. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with the valley in between them. Okay, so you can see the scene. The Philistines are on one side, the Israelites are on the other. They are drawing up their battle lines. They are charged up, they're fired up. They are ready to engage in this brutal form of warfare. Verse 4 says, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, He came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. That's about nine foot nine inches. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds of armor this guy was wearing. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves. These are essentially shin guards made for battle to protect the legs. And he had a bronze javelin on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds. Okay, so here's Goliath. The the text tells us he's a champion. That, That means this isn't his first rodeo. He's done this before and he has done it well. He is a champion at killing and he has come prepared to kill again. He's wearing over 100 pounds of armor. The iron point on his spear weighed 15 pounds, and that tells us that this likely was not a weapon made for for throwing or hurling at the enemy. It's more likely an instrument that's made to jab and to stab at the enemy and to be held in the hand and to be used repeated times. And because of that, and because Goliath was almost 10 feet tall, he likely would have been lined up in the second row of troops. Behind the first row, who would have served as essentially A shield wall. We've got a picture of what a shield wall looks like. This is the wrong time period, but the same idea, okay? Goliath would have been in that second row, and with his great height, he could reach right over that first row and just stab and stab and stab with relative ease and safety. That's what the text is showing us. And now in verse 8, it says that Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Okay, so instead of the potential for mass casualties on either side, Goliath says, let's go one-on-one. Let's go one-on-one. I'll fight for my army. You send a man from your army, and whoever wins, that battle will rule the other. That's the challenge. Now look at the response in verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. They were dismayed and terrified. Listen. Listen. When I was a kid, I had a dog. It was a cocker spaniel, poodle mix. And anytime someone came to our house, came to the front door, you know what my dog did? It'd tuck his tail between his legs, it'd start shaking, and it'd pee on the floor a little bit. (laughs) Every single time. Hundreds of times I wiped dog pee off of our entryway floor. This dog was terrified for who knows what reason. That's the picture that comes to my mind when I read this verse. (laughs) Goliath speaks and the Israelites peed a little. That's what's going on. They're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. Now, it's one thing if the troops are scared. That happens, right? That happens in battle. But you've still got another level of leadership to rally the troops and to help muster courage. But the text says it wasn't just the army that was terrified. The text said Saul and the Israelites we were terrified and dismayed. The king, the one the Israelites so desperately wanted to lead them, is cowering in fear. And there's a detail I want you to see about Saul that makes this even more significant. Kevin read this verse last week. I want us to look at it again. 2 Samuel 9, where Saul is anointed king. Look at what it says. In verse 2, it says, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Or the NASB says it this way. It says, from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Saul was the biggest man in Israel. He was a man without equal among the Israelites. So who do you think the natural choice to face Goliath would be? It's Saul, right? It's the king. Israel had put all their hope in their king, and they should have. It's just that they chose a man to be their king instead of God. Instead of hoping in God, they put their hope in Saul. And where is Saul? He's terrified and dismayed along with everyone else. And the text tells us that for 40 days, Goliath came out every morning and every evening to defy the Israelite armies. And for 40 days, the Israelites waited for their king to come out of his tent and do something. 40 days is a long time, isn't it? It's certainly enough time to start to wonder if maybe your hope has been misplaced. And this is likely the place where the story of David and Goliath begins to intersect with our story. Because here's what's true for all of us. It's on your notes page if you want to write it down. That where you place your trust is also where you'll get your hope. Where you place your trust is where you get your hope. But here's the, here's the deal. If you trust in the wrong thing, you may be left without any hope at all because not everything pays out the hope we desire. I mean, think about this. If you trust in a job to provide for you, what happens when you lose that job? What happens when your company downsizes? What happens when you get demoted? If you trust in wealth to always be there, maybe for retirement or for school or for whatever, what happens when the market tanks? What happens when that unforeseen medical bill comes? You see, where you place your trust is where you'll get your hope, but things tend to fail us. And they often don't pay out the hope we desired. And when that happens, our hope can very quickly turn into to frustration and disappointment and even anger. And this is why you and I have the potential to resent the people who are closest to us more than anyone else. I mean, if you think about this, those people, sometimes even in ways we don't fully recognize, we put so much trust in them, and we have so much hope that, that they'll act a certain way, do a certain thing, go a certain way in life. And when that doesn't play out the way that we had hoped, well, what can we do? Our hope is crushed. And for the Israelites, all their trust and all of their hope was placed in Saul, this human king who they wanted so badly. But Saul is failing them miserably. He's hiding in his tent. And day by day, his credibility slipped away. And day by day, the Israelites' hope died. Now, enter David, this boy Who would be king, this man after God's own heart. And remember, he's probably only about 15 years old here, but we're going to see in the text three specific things that I believe helped to set him apart as a man after God's own heart. The first is this David saw clearly. David saw clearly. The text tells us that David has been going back and forth from tending his father's sheep in Bethlehem to serving Saul. And so one day, his father Jesse sends some food with David for David's brothers who are serving with Saul in the Israelite army. And so David gets to the place where his brothers are, and verse 23 tells us that as he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, the the champion from Gath, he stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance and David heard it now remember this has been going on for over a month right but David's hearing it for the very first time and watch how he responds in verse 26 David asked the men standing there what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel I mean can't you just hear it in his voice just very matter of factly like he's not shaken at all and, and the, the men around him, you know, they're, they're thinking, like, kill this Philistine. Like, nobody can kill this guy. He's almost 10 feet tall. He's a champion of war. Remove this disgrace from Israel. The only person who could have done that is the king. The only person who could have stood a chance, the biggest man in Israel, is hiding in his tent. And then, then David says, well, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And no one else had asked that question. They were looking at this situation with an earthly perspective. But in calling Goliath an uncircumcised Philistine, David is is highlighting something so important. You see, circumcision was the mark of the covenant of God. And by calling this Philistine, you know, uncircumcised, David is saying he's not part of the covenant. He's not under God's protection. There's nothing special about him. So David says, let no one lose heart. I'll go fight him. And so uh, Saul calls David in and and he says, David, you're nuts, right? You can't go fight Goliath. He's a man. You're a boy. He's a champion of war. He's been fighting since he was your age. He's been doing this his whole life. But in verse 34, listen to what David says. David says to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, and I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, and I struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because. And David says this very important word, because. Not because I'm a soldier, I'm not. Not because I'm the strongest of all of the men, I'm not. Not because I'm smarter than anybody else. In fact, not because of anything I'm bringing to the table at all, but because, verse 36, because he has defied the armies of the living God and the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. I want you to write this in your notes. The second characteristic we see is this David walked humbly. David walked humbly. For him, there is no confusion. It was God who had delivered him before, and it was God who would do it again. David takes no credit at all. And here's what's really incredible. We read this passage and others like it, these stories about David's life, and they're, they're really great for giving us the facts, for showing us what happened and what was said, right? But later, after David became king, he began documenting in the Psalms what was going on in his head and what was happening in his heart. And Psalm 25 gives us a really clear picture of this, where David writes these words. He says, "In you, Lord my God, I put my trust I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. I trust in you, God. This was the posture of David's heart. It was the posture that God wanted for all of his people, this posture of humility. And while Saul had failed to take this posture, David was a man after God's heart. And he knew even at a very young age, I think he grasped, the truth, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. David had seen it in his life before, and he trusted that God would do it again. So David says to Saul, let me do what no one else is willing to do. King Saul, let me do what you're not willing to do, because it's not me who will do it. I know Goliath is big, but he is nothing compared to my God, and God will rescue me from his hand. So, Saul uh, gives David permission to go and fight, and, and Saul's still thinking in earthly terms. And so he says, Well, David, if you're going to go, you've got to wear my armor, right? And so he puts all of his armor on David, and it's, it's big and it's awkward. And David's just like, I, I can't, I don't need this. I can't go in this. And so, David instead, he, he picks up five smooth stones and he readies his sling, and it, it's not what we think of as a sling. We think of like a slingshot, pull it back, let it go. This was more like just a, a strip of leather with a pouch in the middle, and you'd put a stone in it, and you'd twirl it, and you'd let let one end of it fly, and that the stone would, would fly in on its path to, to hit the target. David picks his stones, and He readies his sling. And as he approaches the battle line, Goliath throws out those same threats he's been making for the last 40 days. And and David waits and he listens. And then he looks at Goliath and he says this in verse 45, he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. And this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel and all those gathered here. Here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. 15 years old, 15 years old and he is calling this man to account and it shows the third characteristic of David. It's this, David acted confidently. David acted confidently and it wasn't foolish confidence. Okay, David's not acting reckless here. He humbly recognized that his strength and his help came from God, and that's where his confidence came from. See, David's assumption was this, that the person whose hope is in the Lord need not fear, even when there's something to be afraid of. Okay, the person whose hope is in the Lord need not fear even when there's something to be afraid of. And this assumption would stay with David throughout his entire life. But even as a young man, he embraced this truth. He trusted the Lord and he acted confidently. Verse 48 says, As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David quickly ran toward the battle line to meet him. And reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And as the, the Philistine army watched this unfold, I mean, they had to be thinking, oh man, what just happened, right? This isn't good. Our, our champion, our, our warrior is face down on the ground. Get, get up, Goliath. Get up, he's still running towards you, and just so there's no confusion, David jumps on top of this Philistine, draws his huge sword, and cuts his head off, and all the Philistine jaws dropped. They turned and ran, and in that instant, David became the most feared man among all the Philistines And the most famous man, the most popular man among all the Israelites. That's going to play into our story next week and the week after that. But David, this man after God's own heart, he had done something that everyone else had failed to do. Because he saw something that everyone else had failed to see. He humbly trusted in God and that trust led him to act with confidence. And so it is with those who trust in the Lord, even today. They see clearly, fixing their eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, not on what is temporary, but what is eternal. And they walk humbly, knowing that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And they act confidently, knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord, and he has the power to overcome even overwhelming odds. Folks, if you want to be a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart, this is a great place for you to start. Put your trust in God. Set your hope fully on him. Declare with David every single day, and you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Imagine if you woke up tomorrow And before you even got out of bed, you declared with David, Today, God, I put my trust in you. And as the thoughts of the day ahead, they come rushing in, and there's likely things you're not looking forward to, things that are out of your control, things that that make you want to give in to feeling overwhelmed and overcome. Instead of giving in to that, you simply agree with David, God, I trust in you. My hope is in you. And even in the midst of your greatest success. When all the eyes are on you, even in that moment, you whisper under your breath what David must have whispered a thousand times. Lord God, I put my trust, my hope in you all day long. Let me ask you this morning, what are you placing your trust in? I mean, if you were being honest with yourself, with the Lord this morning, when you look at your life, what is it that that you've placed your trust in? It's really easy for us to, to get off course on this, you know, to put our trust in things that are, are bound to fail us, things that, that uh, have proven themselves to be untrustworthy. What is it for you? Can I tell you where my hope is? It's in this. It's in the fact that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. My hope is in Jesus Christ the one and only son of God who lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, and then came back to life, defeating death and giving me hope that one day when he comes again or when I die, that I will be with him for eternity. And I know that hope belongs to several of you in this room. But I also know that, that in this room today, there are some of you who are living without that hope. You are living a life where you have placed your trust in things that, that are destined to fail you. And maybe you're realizing that this morning. Maybe you're realizing that your, your trust and your hope have been misplaced. I want you to know that, that that can change today. That true and lasting hope can be yours through a relationship with Christ. And you can live every day, regardless of circumstances, regardless of fears, regardless of what's to come. You can live full of hope because of what Christ has done for for you. I'd love to talk with you more about what a relationship with Christ looks like. Uh, Come find me after the service. Come find one of our staff. But right now, could I just pray for us? Father God, uh, I love you. And I thank you so much for loving us and for loving this world so much that you sent your one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, Father, but would have everlasting life. And, Father, the, the reality is our hope isn't just uh, for one day. Our hope isn't just a future event, Father. It's for right now, that you have called us to, to be people who trust in you right now and to place our, tr- our hope in you, Father, right now. And so I pray, Lord, that by the work of your Spirit, you would identify those things in our heart that maybe we have inappropriately put our trust in, Father. We confess that, uh, that our hearts are weak, that our minds are weak, Uh, Father, that we so easily misplace that trust. But uh, Father, may today be a day uh, when we we turn our eyes back to you. Father, we say we, we turn our eyes from worthless things. We refocus them on you. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. We fix our eyes not on what is temporary, but what is eternal. Lord, we want to be known as men and women after your heart. Let it start with where we place our trust. Our hope is in you all day long. Lord, we love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.